0: Well, good morning. I am not Dave. I'm sure the hair gave it away. Um, He is home quite sick. He's been battling a fever for a couple of days and he managed to wake up for just a few minutes yesterday to tell me two things. I'm too sick. I'm not going to the youth event today and I need you to read my sermon tomorrow. And that was pretty much it for the rest of the day. (laughs) So if y'all will bear with me, we'll get through this together um, and we'll just jump right in. So good morning. I want to read an article you today article to you today found from Barna Research. It has a lot of statistics in it, and as you probably know, Dave loves statistics. I hope it doesn't bore you, but it does help him to keep things in perspective. It's called The State of the Bible. And here's what it says. With over five billion copies sold, the Bible remains Earth's most read book. But in the world which we read the Bible and engage with the Bible, things are rapidly changing. The steady rise of skepticism is creating a cultural atmosphere that is becoming unfriendly to claims of faith. The adoption of self-fulfillment as our culture's ultimate measure of good is reorienting our whole moral authority. And the explosive growth of digital tools such as Bible apps, daily reading plans, study resources, and online communities offer unprecedented access to the scriptures. Nearly nine out of ten adults and teens report owning a Bible, a proportion that has held steady over six years. Americans continue to own Bibles. Owning one isn't reading it. Nearly a quarter of a century ago, in 1991, 45% of American adults told Barna they read their Bible once a week. In 2009, 46% said the same, we read our Bible once a week. These percentages were remarkably consistent over the course of nearly two decades. But since 2009, Bible reading has become less widespread, especially in America's youngest adults. Today, about one-third, or 35%, of Americans read the Bible at least once a week, and unless something dramatically changes among millennials, Barna researchers expect reading frequency in the general population to trend downward in the coming years, as elders become a smaller share of the total. Half of elders read their Bible once a week, 49%, compared to 24% 24% of millennials. Trust in the Bible's reliability is also dropping. Barna first asked American adults in 1991 if they agreed or disagreed. The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. 25 years ago, 46% strongly agreed, close to half. Today, only one-third of Americans say so. And the percentage of those who strongly disagree has doubled in six years. Four out of five adults, 79%, believe the morals and values of America are declining. But yet, when presented with a list of three possible causes for that decline, nearly half of adults believe the corruption is from corporate greed, 47%. The negative influence of movies, television, and music was chosen by 35%. Less than 1 in 5, or 18%, believe the decline is a result of a lack of Bible reading. Even in just the few years Barna has been conducting the state of the Bible interviews, the data is trending toward Bible skepticism, said David Kinneman, president of Barna and the director of this research. With each passing year, the percent of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men... Increases, so too do the perceptions that the Bible is actually harmful and that people who live by its principles, you're all just a bunch of extremists. Thankfully, the data is not all bad news. In fact, our researchers continue to find bright spots that demonstrate the Bible's cultural staying power and persistent hold on people's hearts. Each of these realities, among others, is a window of opportunity open to leaders. But these windows are not likely to remain open forever. So we must take full advantage to advocate today for the Bible in our skeptical, self-centered, and highly connected world. So okay, what does all of that mean? For me, it means this. We are losing our biblical worldview that the Bible is rapidly losing any meaning or value to the majority of American lives, especially our youngest generation. It means that if something doesn't change now, we are going to lose our children and our grandchildren to the enemy. And I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with that. For a long time now, we have felt that God has called this church to something big. We have used the word revival a lot around here. And I believe that to be true, that God wants to bring revival to this community through this church. But for that to happen, for revival to happen in our community, in our country, it has to happen here first. Truthfully, it has to happen in your house first, and it happens to, has to happen in your heart first. And God's word is the agent of for that revival. Is God's word the foundation that your family stands on? Is it read and discussed in your house? Is the importance and power of God's word taught to your children? Are you modeling it? Does it come before everything else on your long list of priorities? That's why we dedicated an entire year to be in the Word of God together as a church family through the F260 plan. We wanted to show you the importance and power of God's Word as we read and study it together. To show you the joy and sweetness that is found in time spent with God and in His Word. To show you the power and life change that happens in obedience to God's word. We have a perfect picture of that in our reading this week. As we come to the end of Nehemiah, we see that the work on the wall is finally finished. The gates have been hung and the construction project is complete. And now that the actual material building is over, it's time to begin to build the people spiritually. And in our reading of Nehemiah this week, we see a record of that spiritual ministry. In chapter 8, God's word is read to them. In chapter 9, they respond to the reading of God's word by confessing their sin. And in chapter 10, they renew their covenant with the Lord by vowing to follow him and him alone. But what I want you to see in our reading this week is that Ezra and Nehemiah put the word of God first in the life of the city. What happened in Jerusalem from that point on was a byproduct of the people's response to Scripture. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cleanse and revive the hearts of the people of God. If God is to work in and through His people, then they must respond positively to His Word. And we see three basic responses in chapter 8 of Nehemiah which is where we are going to spend our time today. The three responses to God's word we see are understanding the word, and this is verses 1 through 8, rejoicing in the word, verses 9 through 12, and obeying the word, verses 13 through 18. This example is of the whole person. The mind, which is the understanding, the heart, which is the rejoicing, and the will, which is the obeying. And these all must be captive to God's truth. So let's start with understanding. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood many people with names I can't pronounce. To his left stood many more with long names. I say respectfully. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book... They all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen and Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This thing does not like me. The Levites, with their names, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Okay, so there are a couple of things I want us to see from this passage. The first is the Bible is not a magic book that changes everybody's circumstances or changes the people just because someone reads it or recites it. If you start reading the Bible every day, that's awesome, doesn't mean your life is miraculously going to become a fairy tale. God's word must be understood before it can enter the heart and release its life-changing power. Jesus says a similar thing when he tells the parable of the sower. He puts an emphasis on understanding the word of God. Jesus compared understanding and receiving the word to planting of a seed in the soil where it takes root and bears fruit. So understanding is more than just knowledge. It is allowing God's Word to penetrate your heart, change your way of thinking, redirect your steps and produce action that bears fruit. And here is the interesting part. The Levites went around helping the people understand the passages. They talked to each other. And the point I'm trying to get across is, sometimes I think people live in a relationship with Jesus totally solo. They see little to no value in coming together to study God's Word, little or no value in attending a service or being in a small group or a D group. They think they can get all that they need from God totally on their own, or at least the priorities of their schedule certainly make you think that. But there is something powerful about reading God's Word in community together, something we can't get on our own. Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, it isn't that you can't do these things in private. You can, and you should, and we encourage you to do so. Not saying you can't gain an understanding of God's word on your own. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth to us. And at times, that revelation is given directly to you, all by your lonesome. But he can and does use the body of Christ to bring that revelation and understanding of God's word. He talks to you through others. As we encounter God's word together, we have an opportunity to share our different perspectives and our insights and broaden each other and how we see things just because of the interaction. I tend to retain more when I am actively involved in a group discussion. I will stereotype and say that most women do. We like to verbally process instead of just sitting and reading. And it's amazing to me how somebody can say something, and I'm sure it makes wonderful sense and everybody understands it, but I don't get it until I start talking about it. I'll start having a conversation with somebody and boom, the light clicks on. And then God reveals more to me through that person talking to me. In group application and accountability bring understanding that moves God's word from the intellect to the heart. Transformation is encouraged and people's lives are changed. When our lives are changed, the lives of those around us can be changed as well. That is why we encourage you to be in a D group which is an accountability group that is centered around studying God's word, understanding it, and applying it into our lives. Discipleship. Here is the other thing I'd like you to see in the passage, and this is the amazing respect they had for God's word. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people, and when they saw him open that book or that scroll, They rose to their feet. When Ezra opened the book or the scroll, all the people immediately stood. They stood in reverence of the Lord and in honor of his holy law, the word of God. They knew they weren't listening to just something written by some other man. They were going to hear the very word of the Lord. Ezra started his reading and teaching early in the morning and continued through midday which means they stood for five or six hours. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with like 15 minutes. So five or six hours is an extremely long time, but they stood in reverence to the Lord to hear his word. And this went on for about a week. Can you imagine, really think about it, can you imagine having that kind of hunger for the word of God? Where you're willing to stand, attentive and focused, for six hours as the words of the creator of the universe are being read? Where is our hunger for God like that? We have never had as much access to the scripture as we do now, in so many different forms, anywhere you are, yet our desire, according to statistics, is at its lowest point ever. If we want revival, we have to kindle the fire of God's word in our heart. Our desire for his word needs to grow inside of us, and it has to be a priority for us. It has to take life in our hearts so much so that all other distractions that the enemy throws at us have no effect. And sometimes those distractions take the form of sports, fishing, shopping, Instagram, Snapchat, work, these are all distractions of the enemy. Even though we have to work to earn a living, they still take away from our time with God. And are you allowing it to distract you? Do you hunger for the word of God? When was the last time you lost track of time because you were so enveloped in the loving words of your creator? I can remember a time when I had just started reading the Bible, which I freely admit was not that long ago, about eight years ago when I first started reading the Bible daily. And uh, someone convinced me to start with five minutes. They gave me a little devotional called Jesus Calling. And if you've ever read it, it doesn't take much longer than five or ten minutes, you know. And I was so impressed with myself when I made the five minutes. I was, I'm doing good. Come back about a month later. Two months later, and I would have described that time as the most precious time I ever had. Time with my best friend. Every morning, sitting there with my coffee, five minutes went to an hour before I even knew what happened. I was getting up so much earlier in the morning because I wanted to have time to do that and not be rushed. That's what we want all of us to have. And I know that it wavers back and forth from time to time, but it's just recognizing that spending that time in the word of God is spending time with your best friend, the lover of your soul who just wants you to sit and talk to him. And all you have to do is pick up the Bible. You can do that every day. We have the right. The people of Israel had a hunger and a desire to hear the word of God. They had an awe and a respect for the words of the living God, and they allowed God's words to penetrate their hearts as they began to understand the words that were spoken to them. And that brought about the second response to God's word, which is rejoicing, rejoicing in his word. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they had heard God's word and understood them. You see, as Ezra read the word, their disobedience was exposed. It became obvious to them, and they wept. They understood their guilt, and they realized they hadn't only broken God's law, they had broken his heart. In Hebrews it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When your heart is pierced by God's word, it may move you to tears, for some, for sure. It cuts to the quick, and it will be painful. And so the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. The word of God brings conviction, and it leads to repentance, but it also brings joy. For the same word that wounds also heals. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me as the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name. Psalms 19:8: "The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart." So Nehemiah tells them, "Stop mourning! It's time for a party." The people needed to understand this wonderful truth. Once you confess and repent. You are forgiven. There was no longer reason for mourning or crying. Once forgiven, they were to stop grieving and give thanks and praise to the Lord for his forgiveness. But they needed to believe God, trust his holy word, that he had truly forgiven them. And if they believed, they now needed to rejoice. If you really want to know what it is like to rejoice in the word of the Lord read Psalms 119. There are 176 verses about delighting in the word of God. One of Dave's favorites is 162. I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. I love the imagery of this. Picture someone in their backyard digging like crazy, digging their way to China, and they find the huge pile of gold left behind by some pirates that were in your backyard for some reason. And it's all yours. Can you imagine what that would feel like? That's how we should feel when we open the Bible. That is your pile of gold. We find joy in its reliability. It's an immense joy to know that this book in our hands is unlike any other publication in the world, it's 100% truth, no spin, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We find joy in its authority, in a world so full of conflicting opinions, ideas, and ethics, in a world where everyone is right and nobody's wrong, do whatever makes you feel good, in a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, not in anyone else's. In such a world, it is a joy, to have God's word to end all debates on what's right and what's wrong. We find joy in its grace. There could be no joy if this was just a book of do's and don'ts, a book of just guilt, condemnation, and judgment, but we find it's a book packed full of grace for the guilty and mercy for the miserable. We find great joy when we read the words that God used to bring us alive from the dead and to open our eyes to the beauty of Christ. We find joy in its cleansing. As we read God's word, it cleanses us from the filth of this world and the filth that's in our own hearts. We find joy in its strength. Sometimes we face difficulties in life, and we've thought about giving up. You may even be there now. And then God's word is spoken to you or over you, into your life, and it gives you renewed energy motivation, drive, enthusiasm. You're given mental strength, spiritual strength, emotional strength, yes, even physical strength. We find joy in its guidance. So many times we've wondered what we should do, where should we turn. We don't really have an idea. But when we seek in the word of God, the decision can be made clear. We find joy in its warnings. God's warnings about the dangers we face should be a joy to us as they serve to keep us from harm and to motivate us to show and share those warnings to others. We don't resent them, but gratefully receive them from the God who knows far better than we do what's right for us. We find joy in its promises. God's faithfulness is unending, and he has proven himself true to his word over and over again. It's a joy to know that the Lord's promises will come true. We find joy in its communion. Unlike any other book, as we read God's word, we actually enter into communion with its author. We enter into communion with God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. We find joy in its unity. One of the greatest pleasures in reading God's word is to see how each testament fits together how earlier books shed light on later books, and vice versa, and how it all fits together as one great, grand plan of redemption. We find joy in its hope. The Bible is full of anticipation of a brighter and better future, holding out before us the prospect of new heaven and new earth, which we will spend an eternity with our Savior. God's Word is not just a history book. It is not a book of rules and regulations. It is living and active, and it is a personal love letter to you from your creator, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you delight in God's word? God's word brings us understanding, it brings us joy, and ultimately, it should bring us to obedience. On October 9, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival, as prescribed by the law. So the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just outside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. Then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly as was required by the law. See, the Israelites' hunger for the word was so strong, they couldn't stay away. The family leaders went and met with Ezra to go through in greater detail, to study, to learn more. While studying God's word, they discovered the command to celebrate the festival of the tabernacles during this month. They learned that they were to live in temporary booths or shelters during the seven days of the festival. And these temporary shelters were to be made of sticks and branches. And living in these temporary shelters would remind them of the wilderness journey their ancestors took when they left Egypt and had to live in tents. But here's the cool part, and the part you really need to focus on. As soon as they discovered that God commanded them to celebrate the festival, they immediately went about to follow his word, to obey. And everyone who had returned from exile built booths and participated in the festival, and they were filled with joy. Joy. Not joy from the good things God gave, but joy in the opportunity to obey him. The response to God's word should ultimately lead to obedience. Not an obedience done out of obligation, but one done out of joy. Not an obedience done out of fear, but one done out of love. If God's word is active and alive in our lives, the result is our joyful obedience to his commands? If you are finding yourself in a place where your relationship with the Lord is distant and cold, my question to you is this Are you allowing the word of God to transform your life? Are you allowing it to take deep root in your heart so that it can produce that sweet celebration? Are you being obedient to his word? so that it brings change to your life? See, it's not what you hear that changes your life or what you read, but it is your obedience to that that changes your life. James says, but don't just listen to the word. You have to do what it says. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. Are you fooling yourself? God has given us the means to revive a cold dead heart and a breathless spiritual life and restore our passion for him and it comes through reading and hearing his word and responding in obedience as the band comes up let me leave you with this if we want revival in our community and in our homes and in our lives it has to start with god's word nowhere else You need to begin to build a hunger for the word of God and you need to build that desire in your family as well. I love that the example in this story begins as the heads of the families come to Ezra and want to study more. The leaders of the family stepped up. As heads of a family, they simply wanted to apply the teachings of God's holy word to their daily lives, learning how to build a loving and righteous family living productive and fruitful lives in the midst of a very corrupt world. I believe that is what God has called each family at TBA to do as well. And it is our prayer that we will be the church that God has called us to be, not the church that we want to be, what God has called us to be, a church grounded and standing on the word of God a church rejoicing in his commandments, and a church obedient to whatever he asks. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you are filled with mercy and grace for us all. That even as we rebel and as we sin and as we are stiff-necked, you love us so much to be standing there with arms wide open, just waiting to grab us up in a hug and forgive everything as we ask and repent of those sins. Father, we want to be the church you have called us to be, one that is rejoicing daily in your amazing love and one that is obedient to whatever you may ask of us. Father, allow Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in that way. And Father, help us all to bring revival into our own hearts so that it may spill over into everyone around us. Father, we love you so much. And we pray all of these things in your precious son's name. Amen.